Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, June 18th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when it comes to modern-day Methodist preachers, few have as much street cred as Fred Craddock. Now, if you've been at this church for any number of years, you may remember uh, Pastor Jim Powell speaking about Fred Craddock. He was his preaching professor uh, at seminary at theological, the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. But Craddock has uh, quite a unique preaching style. Uh, he was, uh, it was undergirded by these powerful stories that he would weave into his sermons. In fact, uh, some of those stories he chronicled in this book, uh, Craddock Stories. I never had the chance to hear him preach live, uh, but I've read so many of his books and, uh, and his sermons. And uh, the story I'm about to tell you comes from this book, Craddock Stories. And it's always, he always tells them in the first person. So be hearing Fred's words as I share this story. He writes, when I was in pastoring in Tennessee, there was a girl about seven years old who came to our church regularly for Sunday school, and sometimes her parents would let her stay uh, for the worship service. We had this circular drive at the church. It was built for people uh, who let their children off and then drove on. Uh, we didn't want to inconvenience them, so we had the circular drive. Well, but they were very faithful, Mom and Dad. They had moved from New Jersey with the new chemical plant. He was upwardly mobile. They were both young and ambitious, uh, and they didn't come to church. I guess there wasn't really a need for that. But on Saturday nights, the whole town knew about their parties. They gave parties not for entertainment value, but as part of that whole upwardly mobile thing. That determined who was invited, you know, the right people, just the one above where they were, and so on and so on, right up to the boss. And those parties were full of drinking and wild and vulgar things. Everybody knew this. But there was their beautiful little girl every Sunday in Sunday school. And occasionally, she would stay for worship. Well, one Sunday morning, I looked out in the worship service, and there she was. And I thought, oh, she must be with her friends. But Mr. and Mrs. Mom and Dad were there as well. And they came up to the front at the end of the service. And they confessed their commitment to Jesus, and they wanted to join the church. And I asked them what prompted this. And they said, well, do you know about our parties? And I said, yes, I've heard about your parties. Well, they said, we had one last night. It got a little loud. It got a little rough. And there was, well, a little too much drinking. We waked our daughter and she came downstairs to about the third step. She saw that we were eating and drinking. And she said, oh, can I say the blessing? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Good night, everybody. And then she went back upstairs. Oh, my Lord, look at the time, one person said. Oh, we've got to be going. Another, oh, we've stayed too long, said more. And within two minutes, the entire house was cleared out. Mr. and Mrs. Mom and Dad began cleaning up, picking up the crumpled napkins and the wasted and spilled peanuts and the half-eaten sandwiches and taking empty glasses on trays to the kitchen. And with two trays, he and she met on either side of the sink. They looked at each other, and they both expressed what they were thinking. Where do we think we're going? The moment of truth. All because of their daughter's prayer. 
Welcome to the first week in a four-part sermon series entitled, And a Little Child Shall Lead Them. When I first came to Palmdale United Methodist Church about two years ago, I quickly learned that we were building the next generation. This wasn't just a slogan for the building campaign for our 15 acres of property on 25th Street West in Rancho Vista. No, this was a summary of what the church truly valued and believed in. In keeping with Jesus' call to let the little children come unto me, this church has long prioritized the importance of children, youth, and young adults. Not simply to grow the church, but to invest in the discipleship of our next generation of people here in the Antelope Valley. From our renowned preschool to our dynamic children's ministry. From our relational youth group to our meet-them-where-they-are young adult ministry. Palmdale United Methodist Church believes that the kingdom of God demands that we pour ourselves out into our young people. For they are not just the future of the church, they are our present here and now. So with that in mind, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to look at scripture passages where children are at the heart of the message? So today we begin with this passage from Isaiah chapter 11. That's the basis for the whole series, and a little child shall lead them. Now, before we get into the passage from Isaiah, there's a bit of background information uh, that we have to kind of get up to speed on, and I apologize if some of you already know this, but I think it's helpful to take a few steps back and look at the big picture. The Old Testament begins in the book of Genesis with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Genesis finishes with Jacob's family, all 12 sons, one daughter, and their families coming into the land of Egypt. Joseph, one of the 12 sons, has become second in command of the Pharaoh, and he's able to help save the family from starvation because of the famine. Well, when we flip the page from Genesis to Exodus, 300 years pass. Jacob's family has grown into a great people, the 12 tribes of Israel, but now they're enslaved by the Egyptians. So after crying out for desperation, God sends Charlton Heston to save them, to rescue them out of captivity and bondage and lead them in to the promised land. The trip took about 40 years and God brought the next generation into the land of prosperity. Well, over time, the people were able to carve out uh, places in this land uh, amongst the other people who lived there. Each had a different area to live from the north all the way to the south. Saul was the first king of Israel. David became the second and most famous. It was during David's reign that Israel finally was able to secure their borders and the people had some rest. And they were able to develop in the arts and and to do things that they hadn't before because they were always fighting to kind of find their own place. When David's son Solomon became the third king, he had two big building projects to work on, building the temple in Jerusalem and building the royal palace. Well, those both, as you can imagine, required lots of money and lots of resources, including people power, in order to get them built. Well, when Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, became the fourth king of Israel. And the Israelites up in the north uh, send a a delegate asking, hey, um, now that you're king, are you going to be as hard on us as your father was? Because it took a lot out of us in order to get the the temple and the palace built. And, uh, And he responded by saying, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Did not bode well with the people in the north. And so the kingdom split in two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah was where the capital was in Jerusalem. And from this time onward, the people of Israel had two kingdoms and two kings. 
The folks in the north always had it a bit harder than those in the south, mostly because of geography. They were the buffer between Judah and anyone else who wanted to come and stake a claim in the Middle East. Enter the Assyrian dynasty, one of the first great superpowers in the whole Middle Eastern region. Between 740 and 722 BCE, the Assyrians systematically attacked and conquered all of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. They took the best and the brightest of the young people away in order to train them in their own country. It was a devastating moment in Israel's history. And then they made their way down south into Judah and took Jerusalem as well. Which brings us to our reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, a few chapters before what was read for us, uh, beginning in chapter 9 and continuing through chapter 10, one image after another comes with this idea of the strong preying upon the weak. Patricia Cull in her Smith and Helvey's commentary on Isaiah lists the strong and the weak situations that Isaiah has uh, lifted up. Israel and the nations against each other. Uh, the leadership of Judah in the south against the poor. Assyria against Judah. Even God against Assyria, who has finally had enough. You see, the prophets mentioned that God allowed the Assyrians to overrun both the north and the southern kingdoms because how the people of God had strayed away from what God wanted them to do with their lives and how they had lived. They had been so unfaithful that God finally was so frustrated that God had had enough and said, maybe this will bring them back to me. And Isaiah lists the reprimands and admonitions that God uh, gives upon the people. But God also holds the Assyrians responsible for the devastation they wrecked upon Israel and Judah. Isaiah 10 mentions how they'll face judgment as well. And then we get to chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah. God offers a glimmer of hope just at the right moment in history. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, at this time in Israel's history, the once mighty tree known as the southern kingdom of Judah has now been reduced to just a mere stump. A stump that many people thought was completely dead, no life left to it. But it's not all dead. There still is hope. There's opportunity for new life. A shoot will spring forth from this seemingly dead nation, a metaphor that was widespread amongst the Semitic peoples in that day, that the clans of people were compared to a tree whose strength was not in how tall they were, but how deep their roots ran. A root shall come out of the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of its roots, Isaiah tells us. Well, Jesse was David's father. David was, uh, the, David's line of descendants were supposed to sit on the throne of Israel in, perpetu in perpetuity. But the Assyrian and the Babylonian invaders put an end to this. The, the kings who remained there were just puppets to the oppressors. And God had something new for his people. Isaiah speaks of a new king, a new leader. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness be around his loins. Out of this seemingly dead stump, will come a new king, one who will have God's full authority, one who will work on behalf of the poor and the weak, the oppressed and the meek, 
One who will execute justice and righteousness. One who won't be swayed or led astray by bribes or special interest groups. He'll be a leader so grounded in his connection to God that the entire nation will be changed because of who he is. Now, some scholars believe that this passage from Isaiah 11 is speaking about King Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, who came in the late 7th century. He became king when his father, Amnon, was assassinated. King at the age of 8 years old. How many 8-year-olds do you know that could lead a nation, right? Well, despite his young age, Josiah brought about some of the greatest reforms in Israel's history. And he helped bring the people back in alignment with what God wanted for them. Josiah's reign began right as the Assyrian dynasty began to decline. It's an amazing story. If you want to read it on your own, 2 Kings 22 is where it starts. But there's another young king that many scholars look to when they hear Isaiah 11 being read. When it comes to one known for being filled with the Spirit of God, one who has divine wisdom and understanding, a single-minded devotionist for the Lord, one who came as a child, both as a king, ruler, and Lord. And of course, many of us Christians think about Jesus when we hear this passage, who graced this earth first as an infant, a baby, Emmanuel, God with us, and he would be no ordinary king. With his leadership, he reestablished the order that God had intended among creation, a kingdom not of violence and separation, but of peace, of perfect harmony to be restored among all of God's creatures. Isaiah 11, verse 6, The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, remember the context in which this was penned, right? The Hebrew people had gone through schism and split and occupation. The military might of the Assyrians had come in and just devastated everyone. The people of God had forsaken who God had called them to be, but now God was going to send a new king, a little child who would lead them back into alignment to lead God's people in new directions. The peaceful kingdom is what this passage has come to be known by, a place where natural predators are able to coexist in peace. Not just coexist, but but to thrive together. Wolves and lambs, leopards and kids, calves and lions, cows and bears, lions and oxen. We have a hard time fathoming this scenario, don't we? I mean, how can it be? It goes against the natural order of things, the way creatures were created. And yet, if we think in terms of the big picture, God created all of us to be in peace with one another. And the animal kingdom is just a metaphor for we humans that constantly get it wrong. We hold on to our predatory ways, don't we? You see, my friends, we still live at times when the poor, the meek, the unjust, and the wicked still exist and prey upon each other. We long for the reign of Christ who will come again with righteousness and faithfulness. And we don't know when Jesus will return, but in the meantime, God says, you need to start working for this peaceable kingdom, a world where none of God's beloved children need to live in fear or danger. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. For the knowledge will be, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. Can you imagine what it would be like if this happened today? The prophet Isaiah calls us to look at life not the way it currently is with hatred and violence and war and discrimination and intolerance and tragedy. Every day a different story comes in the news, right? 
but to look at how life can be. This glorious dwelling place that, if we're honest, most of us don't believe ever will actually come to exist. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed differently. An American Baptist minister, Dr. King, was one of the pivotal leaders in our nation's civil rights movement. In 1955, he led the Montgomery bus boycott. He helped form the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957. In 1962 and 1963, he helped stand up against segregation in both Albany, Georgia, and Birmingham, Alabama. But it was his march on Washington, August 28, 1963, that vaulted Dr. King into national prominence and led to the establishment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. A quarter of a million people converged on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., at a time when our country was especially darkened by overt racism and hatred. Standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, it was here that Martin gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, a speech that echoes the words of Isaiah 11 and reminds all of us of the roles that children still play in the redemption of humanity. Here are a few portions of this amazingly powerful speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day, right here in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain made low, rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. So how do we help bring about this peaceable kingdom that Isaiah, Jesus, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about? Author Megan McKenna encourages us to pray for the same spirit that filled Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. We have access to the same Holy Spirit that we might have that same power to express in our words and in deeds to transform all areas of life. And that along the way, we might just be surprised to find that children will play a major role in the unveiling of God's kingdom. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to listen to a brand new podcast uh, from the Relevant Podcast Network. It's called the Shauna Nequist Podcast. Shauna is an accomplished author of numerous books. She's the daughter of Pastor Bill Hybels from Willow Creek Church in uh, Illinois. I absolutely love her writings. I've included portions of them in some of my sermons in the past. And so I was eager to subscribe to this podcast and begin listening. Well, uh, in her second episode, she interviewed Heather Avila, author of The Lucky Few, Finding God's Best in the most unlikely places. And I was riveted to my seat 
as I heard Heather's amazing story. Heather began by saying she's the kind of person who likes to be in control of every aspect of her life. Can anyone else relate to that? So when she and her husband Josh had been trying to get pregnant for about a year, it was quite shocking and startling revelation to find out when she was labeled infertile. She realized she has now lost all control. This was really, she said, the first major crushing experience of loss in her life because her ultimate goal was to be a mom. Ideally, that meant to have children naturally, but but now it was time to explore other options, including adoption. So Heather and Josh went through a private adoption agency. They said, we chose the private agency so we could have more control over the child that would come to us, you know, age, gender, health, that sort of thing. It was an extremely long and detailed process, but they finally became an official waiting family. Heather said part of this process was tons of paperwork, uh, including a checklist of what they were willing and not willing to take in a child that would uh, be available to them for adoption. Subjects like gender, race, birth parents' history, mental illness, every illness you've ever heard of, she said, and then about a hundred more that you'd never heard of. And so they checked yes to a few things, but they primarily wanted just a healthy baby. So there were a lot of no's that they checked. They were, they'd already scheduled to go on a trip to Europe. And before leaving, they tried to check in with their social worker just to see if she got all the paperwork and how everything was going. But they didn't make that connection before they left. So on their trip, she got an email uh, from the social worker updating them on the process. And she said, it's really slow at the agency right now. We had a couple of babies with Down syndrome placed with us. It's always hard finding a place for them. Uh, Your profile has been viewed once by a birth mother. Hang in there. It's going to be fine. Well, Heather said she knew that the social worker wasn't telling them about the Down syndrome babies to try to get them to choose that because they had been very clear on their uh, form what they would take and what they wouldn't. But God began to change her heart. She said, I felt like I had two options. I could close my computer and move on with the next activity of my day or not. Suddenly, I couldn't undo what I had just read. I couldn't. I wasn't excited about it, (laughs) but I couldn't ignore it. So she said she talked to her husband, uh, who surprised her by saying uh, they should pray about it. That was not the answer that she was hoping to get from her husband. So they did that, and for a week... They prayed about it, and they talked about it in almost every conversation that came up. And at the end of the week, they decided they would ask the social worker a few more questions about these two children with Down syndrome. She said, it seemed like there were a hundred reasons not to adopt a child with Down syndrome, but none of them was a good reason. So when they called the social worker, uh, one of the babies had already been placed with a family. The other baby had just been diagnosed with a ton of health issues, and she wasn't going to be placed with a family because she was too sick. When they hung up the phone, Heather and Josh asked each other, well, now what if we don't get a baby with Down syndrome? And by vocalizing this question, they realized that God had already changed their hearts completely. Well, six to eight weeks later, they got the call that they had expected and been waiting for. The adoption agency had a better understanding of uh, the original Down syndrome girl. And she had already had one heart surgery when she was six weeks old. Another one was scheduled. But would they like to know more? They're suddenly reopening the possibility of placing this child. 
So they said yes. It took about another month before they brought her home with all of the medical issues being explained. She had a congenital heart defect, which would need another open-heart surgery. She was on oxygen 24-7 due to pulmonary hypertension, which was incurable, but it was treatable. Nevertheless, they were informed that she might only live to be five to eight years old. Heather and Josh said, well, who cares about Down syndrome now? Look at this sick, sick child who needs someone to love her. So the more they listened to God, the more they heard no is not the answer. They were 100% sure that God was giving them a gift. They chose not to try to figure out if it was a good gift or not, and they simply chose to receive the gift with trust. Ten days later, Mason came home with them, and that was a turning point. Suddenly, Heather was a mom. It was what she had been waiting for her entire life. She told Shauna, the floodgates of God's favor and love just opened upon us. She was able to give the listeners an update on Mason. Her second open-heart surgery was at four months old. It went really well. Her lungs were not getting any better. The pulmonologist kept telling them it, was in, it wasn't improving until two years later. The doctor told them suddenly and out of the blue that her hypertension was completely gone. No explanation, no reason why, just done. She would never need oxygen uh, supplements again. She'll be nine this month. Completely healthy. In fact, <laughs> I started following uh, um, Heather on Instagram, and Mason had a hip-hop concert this week that she was <laughs> sending updates on how she was doing. It's just amazing. But, she said, Mason changed their whole perspective. Heather and, Joe, uh, 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 Heather and Josh suddenly had a completely new outlook on what mattered in life. They eventually adopted two more children, which is uh, what this book, The Lucky Few, is about, finding God's best in the most unlikely places. Their third child that they adopted also has Down syndrome. Needless to say, when they filled out the checklist, there was nothing that they checked no. They were open to whatever God would send them. My brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is not the way that God intended it to be. But that doesn't mean... It has to stay the way it is, and we just shrug our shoulders and say there's nothing we can do. The scriptures are filled with passages like Isaiah 11, where God's vision of what can be is lifted up, and we are challenged to grow into that. Yes, it seems overwhelming at times. Yes, if left to our own, it would be impossible, but God doesn't leave us to our own. God gives us the Holy Spirit. And we have the gift of Jesus, the one who came to redeem us all, God's only begotten Son who lived a life of love, acceptance, grace, and transformation. He was the culmination of Isaiah chapter 11, the king who would come and make all things right, the shoot that would sprout out of the stump of Jesse. And God is still working about bringing out that kingdom. So let us not lose heart, friends. Life can be different then what we read in the news every day can be filled with peace, love, and harmony if we will catch hold of that dream. The dream of Isaiah, the dream of Jesus, the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And may we come to believe that it will not be those in power or the wealthy who will bring this about because a little child shall lead us. Our children are a gift from God. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear what they teach us, whether it means helping us change certain lifestyle choices we've made 
like the little girl in Fred Craddock's church, or to help us completely re-envision what's important to us in life like Mason did for Heather and Josh, or, or the ways our children here at Palmdale United Methodist Church teach us about God. Thanks be to God for the children that God sent us. Amen. Amen.